Shalom, and welcome to A Voice Calling in the Wilderness, a trumpet call, a voice crying out loud for God to those that would hear, so that they would run to Him, that they might be warned. We are here sounding the alarm that our time here on earth is short and that we have no time to waste. Here we will expose the truth, teach the word, discuss the dangers, lies, and enemies we are surrounded by, and how to engage in the war that we are standing in the middle of. Today we are talking with our friend, Pastor Gary Durham, in a continued discussion on salvation. Welcome to the show, Pastor Durham. Good to be back, J.D. So last time we began discussing the roots of our salvation and how doctrine may miss the mark biblically in some areas, and how they get it right in others. Mm -hmm. And these doctrinal lessons form our thoughts and our opinions today. But I would like to go and try to give closure to some of those people that have been asking questions specifically. And due to different doctrines that have added opinions, that there are many people have heartfelt questions that deal in the details surrounding our salvation, not just the big picture or mm-hmm. the roots like we talked about, but little details that people get caught up in. Right. And I think one of the things that we probably should talk about very early is justification, mm-hmm. sanctification, and then we can move later on into some of the signs of what salvation looks like. So can you talk to us a little bit about what justification is? Well, justification, of course, is one of the central doctrines of of Scripture. And, of course, the great passage is on justification is Romans 4 and 5, where Paul, arguing like a lawyer in a courtroom, uh, literally points to the fact that God has not set aside his justice, uh, that the law is still valid as a standard of God's holiness, God's justice, but that he had to find a way to save mankind and justify mankind without violating his own justice. He could not set it aside. So we are not saved by God sweeping something under the rug. Justification, uh, the, the, the great statement by Paul is that he is the justifier, and he is, he, is the, he is the one who is just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Christ. So what he's saying is that the cross and Christ were, was God's genius solution whereby he could actually save mankind and deal with mankind justly so that their sins actually have to be dealt with. And at the same time, he remains just in doing so. He's not sweeping anything under the rug. And so justification is a legal term. It's something that the court declares. Uh, It declares a person is justified. They're in the right or they're no longer guilty. Uh, God has the power to do that because he's the judge. But more than that, he does that on the basis of what Christ has done for us. So justification has nothing to do with our works. It's a it's something that God has provided, and he has said that those who put their faith in Christ, which he enables them to do, as we talked about provenient grace last time, all are enabled to believe when they hear the gospel. They may choose not to, but if they do, God has said that he will justify, and he does it on the basis that Christ actually paid for all of our sins. Therefore, he's not being unjust because they're actually dealt with. And the point is that Christ is this unique individual in which we know him to be. He is the God-man who can die for all mankind because he's God. He can take us all into himself. Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians 1.30 when he says, you know, God put us in Christ Jesus And therefore, he deals with us in Christ, and he says he's become wisdom for us from God, and that he has become our righteousness, he's become our sanctification, he's become our redemption. So 
Christ did all these things for us. And then when we put our faith in him, we literally unite with him and what he did for us in paying for our sins, what he did in resurrecting, burying us and resurrecting us becomes a reality in us. So that's uh, justification is, is basically something that is a legal concept. And uh, it is something that God has done, which we uh, benefit from when we choose to accept his provision. So justification has nothing to do with us. We, we have no act in it. We, have, we don't provide anything. We don't do anything. We don't deserve anything. In fact, it, he justifies, you know, Paul's great statement is that, you know, God's love is expressed in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, Paul is saying, you didn't deserve anything. You didn't earn anything. You know, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So uh, justification is a totally unmerited favor that God gave us. But what he did is just because he has the right as the judge to say that what Christ did does indeed pay for our debt. It's uh, I mean, we've often heard people use illustrations like, you know, a fine is leveled because of a crime and someone else steps up and pays the fine. And yes, that is allowed uh, under the law. And so now the person is free to go. And in a sense, you could use that kind of loose analogy that Christ did that for us. He took on us, you know, as Paul put it in uh, first, or 2 Corinthians 5, that, you know, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So this justification still has to be received. We have to choose to receive it, though. Yes, we have to choose to receive it. And the Bible's very clear about that. Uh, it comes by faith, and that faith is enabled by the power of the Spirit. And we'll t- we can talk more about it as we go on. But the justification is provided for by God. It's provided for the whole human race. It's provided for whosoever will may come and drink of the water of life freely, as Revelation puts it in that final chapter. So, yes, it's, it's, but it's something we must receive, but you, must, you can come freely to receive it, but you can also say no. So justification is the fulfillment of the law. If it is a satisfaction of the requirement of law, yes. then sanctification has more to do with us and our nature. Can you help our listeners understand what sanctification is yeah. and how that comes about? Well, justification, the Bible talks about Christ as a propitiation for our sins. It's something that satisfies the wrath of God. It satisfies the justice of God so that God can remain just at the same time while he justifies us. He doesn't lay his holiness aside and so on. But in sanctification, we move into something quite different. And that is that now that we are reconciled to God by the fact of this justification, therefore God, we're reconciled to God and God's life comes into us. Now, Paul refers to this in Romans chapter 5, and verses 9 and 10, and he talks about, you know, that we're reconciled to God through the death of his son. And then he says this, and now that we've been reconciled through the death of his son, how much more shall we be saved? And the word saved here doesn't mean to be saved or born again. He's talking about believers. You know, now that we've been reconciled, we are reconciled. We are believers. We are in Christ. But how much more then shall we be saved? And here the word would be better translated uh, set free or emancipated through his life. So you might even take a, a word picture there. It's like taking a branch and saying it's been reconciled to the tree. You've grafted it back in. Now that it's grafted in and it's reconciled to the tree, what happens? Well, the life of the tree, the, the sap of the tree comes into the branch and begins to nourish it and cause it to grow, cause it to bear fruit. 
and so on. And that's what would be a symbol of sanctification. And Paul's saying, now that we've been reconciled, what will happen? Well, God's life will is in us, and that life will have consequences. And the consequences are we will grow, we will uh, flourish, we will bear fruit. And the fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit just of works. It's the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit, of course, produces good works. Well, that brings up another question that's been asked. Okay. What does a Spirit-filled life look like? What does it look like? What are these fruits? Well, the Spirit-filled life is, uh, if, in fact, what's interesting is that uh, there's been a lot of connotative ideas about the Spirit-filled life. Uh, and uh, and I often ask people, were the disciples believers before, uh, you know, before Pentecost, and did, they, and did they have the Holy Spirit? Well, the answer is yes, because if you read John chapter 20, um, when Jesus appears to the 11, uh, the 10, actually, because Judas is not there and Philip and Thomas is not there, as we know, and it'll be a week later before Thomas will see the Lord. But uh, it says that when he appears to them, the first thing he says to them is, peace be unto you. What Jesus would have said as a good Jewish rabbi is shalom. Mm-hmm. Shalom. Now, what's interesting is he had, and there's a, there's a whole story wrapped up here that'll come to the point. But the whole point is, is that Jesus earlier that day had seen Mary Magdalene. You remember, and she sees she's the first one to see the Lord, and she starts to take hold of Jesus. And a lot of our modern translation says uh, translates it, "Do not cling to me." Um, the Greek is much more emphatic. It basically says, "Do not touch me." In other words, he was, and it's emphatic. It means don't lay a hand on me. Mm. And the reason for that, and then he says, the reason is, for I have not yet returned to my father. And then he says, but go tell my brothers that I am returning to my God and to their God, to my father and their father, and that I will meet them in Galilee. And so he tells her to go give the message that he's right now returning to the father. So the question is, when did he return to the father? Now, in Hebrews chapter 9, we get a whole dissection of what happened when Jesus returned and ascended with his own blood, made the atonement in the real temple in heaven, the one that the one on earth was only a prototype of, or, or rather we should say a copy of, and that he he made a, an atonement that is once for all, never needing to be repeated again. And so it, it's like, this is what you would say, the great Yom Kippur, this is the one which they celebrate every year in Israel to wipe away the sins of all the people. When the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, Jesus has been the sacrifice. His blood is the sacrifice. But now that he is risen, he's the great high priest. So he says to her, don't touch me. Now, why did he say that? Because he's following the rituals and the symbols perfectly. He wants them to understand the correlation between the types of the Old Testament and the New. And so he says to Mary, don't touch me. Why? Because when the high priest was ready to ascend in the Holy of Holies, he had cleansed himself seven times. He had had sacrifice. Jesus didn't have to do that because he was already holy and pure. But the point is, is that you didn't touch him before he went into the Holy of Holies. Jesus says, I'm getting ready to go into the Holy of Holies in heaven. So interestingly enough, then when he comes out that evening and says to them, Shalom, the disciples should have caught this, and they eventually did. But the point is, is that the very first words the high priest would speak after he came out of the Holy of Holies is that the people are waiting outside. They want to know, is the sacrifice going to be received? Did he get struck dead because it wasn't received, you know, and so on and so forth. But when he comes out, they don't say a word until the high priest would go, 
shalom. Because the word shalom, peace, doesn't mean just the absence of strife. It means actually everything is as it should be. Everything is right. Everything is good. Mm -hmm. Everything is whole and healthy. And Jesus comes out and goes, shalom. And what's he doing? He's enacting the part of the great high priest. Now, here's the point. Jesus then says to them immediately, as the Father has sent me, so I am now sending you. Well, how did the Father send Jesus? Well, he sent him by incarnation. Mm -hmm. He enfleshed the Son and was sent, and he became a man. And he says, now, in like manner, I'm going to send you. Then it says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus is doing two things here. A good rabbi often enacted what he was saying. And so Jesus goes around the room and literally breathes in the face of every disciple and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And, of course, you know breath was a symbol of the Spirit. That The words were synonymous, pneuma in the Greek and ruach in the Hebrew. And uh, so, anyway, Jesus does this and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says, if you forgive anyone their sins, they're forgiven. And if you retain anyone's sins, they're retained. All of a sudden, they are, the Holy Spirit is enfleshed into his church, and now they have the authority of Christ Mm -hmm. to proclaim the forgiveness of sins and the lack of forgiveness of sins that people don't properly repent. They do that on the basis of the gospel and the teachings of Christ. It's not their own arbitrary decision, but they can say to someone, yes, you have truly repented and believed in Christ, therefore your sins are forgiven. And that's the authority of the church, and the church has that authority. Now, that leads to spirit-filled life. And so what if they already had the Holy Spirit, what happened to them on the day of Pentecost? Because Jesus tells them during the 40 days he's with them, and right before he leaves, do not leave Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father. What is this promise of the Father? He keeps talking about He said, you've heard me talk about this. So obviously it wasn't the first time they had talked about this. And Jesus said, don't leave till you get it. So we know they already have the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathed on them, said, receive the Holy Spirit. If he said that and breathed on them, they got the Holy Spirit. And he had told them on the night before the cross, he's with you, but he shall be in you. So now he's saying, the atonement is done. I've just come out of the Holy of Holies in heaven. So now you can receive the Holy Spirit. So they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, on the day of Pentecost, what happens? Because he's telling them to wait for this promise of the Father, which is a work of the Spirit. And the way it comes is to validate that this is indeed a work of the Spirit. The first thing they hear is the sound of a mighty rushing wind. What is that symbolic of? That's symbolic of the Holy Spirit, wind, spirit. Mm -hmm. And so they know something's happening that's a result of God's Spirit. And then flames of fire, tongues of fire comes and sets symbolically on the heads of each of them, which is symbolic of the purifying presence of the Holy Spirit, where he purifies the heart and purifies the life. And then they are all filled. And the word filled there which comes from the, the, the basic root word of the Greek word panda, which means to be full, it would be best translated. They were all saturated with the Holy Spirit. Now, here we need to pause and ask ourselves a question. What does it mean to be saturated with the Holy Spirit? Okay, uh, if you take a sponge, and if you're holding a sponge and you start pouring water into it, and I've often asked classes to, to, to watch this happen, you know, but you, you start pouring water into a sponge. At first, nothing comes out if you're pouring it in slowly because mm-hmm. the sponge just absorbs it, absorbs it, absorbs it. And then at some point, the sponge is saturated. And how do you know it's saturated? 
when it starts pouring out the other side. It can hold no more. And what this means is it's not that the whole the disciples got the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They already had the Holy Spirit. The question is what happened? They were saturated, filled with the Holy Spirit, so that now the Holy Spirit got all of them. Their whole nature came under the saturating presence of the Holy Spirit. And Peter would later say that what happened in Cornelius' house, when the Gentiles that he preached to received the Holy Spirit, he said they got the same thing we did. God made no distinction between us and them, Acts chapter 15, for he purified, he gave them the Holy Spirit and purified their hearts by faith. And this idea of purity is means to make single. If you have pure water, you have water only. If you have pure gold, you have gold only. So he's saying that their hearts were purified. What are they purified? It means your love is purified. There is not now no competing loves between you and God. God is truly Lord of all. So a spiritual life is a life saturated by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And yes, we can be filled and refilled at times. There later. In uh, Acts chapter 4, they have a prayer meeting, and they're all filled again and begin to speak the Word of God with boldness. And Paul, later, when uh, he's dealing with the uh, sorcerer Bar-Jesus on the Isle of, of Cyprus, will, it says, and Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, turns and says to him, you're going to be blind. And instantly the man struck blind because the Holy Spirit had filled him for that particular moment of of miraculous work, which caused the proconsul, the Roman proconsul, to believe. So the fullness of the Spirit is a life saturated by the Lordship of Jesus Christ, lived in obedience and glory to Him. And uh, all Christians need to seek to live a Spirit-filled life, and it means to have your heart purified, which means a death to self-sovereignty, which we have to appropriate that. That's mm-hmm, already mm-hmm. provided for in the Atonement. We have to appropriate it by faith, though. For some, that's like a second crisis, uh, and others will have many other crises as they deal with strongholds that would resist his sovereignty in their life and come free from those. The point is, is that we progressively through sanctification are constantly seeking to become more like Christ and to remove anything and let him purify out anything. But he does that by illuminating us, and only a Christian can be so illuminated in regard to their inner life. And he's illuminating us so that he can sanctify because he doesn't sanctify us in the dark. He sanctifies us in the light. Right. And the light is symbolic of him sharing with us our need and then helping us to see the provision in Christ. And we appropriate by faith. And then when you appropriate something by faith, it becomes actual in your life. I talk to people often about this filling as well. Then you use the analogy of the sponge. And then mine's similar because I tell people that when you're filled— and, you know, you're saturated and it's starting to flow out of you, then it starts to affect people around you. Yeah, yeah. And that's what it really is about, is if you if you let the, the Holy Spirit come in you and you let yourself be filled with this, it's going to impact the people around you. It's going to, people will be able to notice yeah. because your, your attitudes are going to be different. You're going to be doing things that you weren't doing before. People will see a change in your life. They will see that you're doing things that they would like to do because, right. quite honestly, those things are all positive. And that really puts us kind of, you know, and though we won't go there yet, but it, just to mention it, what you're talking about is is the inevitable effect of being a believer in Christ and, and having the Holy Spirit in your life. You cannot but be changed. Right. People who claim, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, and I've got God in my life, but they're living exactly as they did before they came to Christ— 
something's not right because you can't have the God of the universe living inside of you and be the same as you were before. And that's, this is part of the predestination of the believer because Paul says that those he foreknew, and we'll get to that maybe later, those he foreknew, those who he knew would become his children, he predestined to be conformed. Notice this predestination is not to salvation, but to conformity. So this is about sanctification. He's predestining them to be conformed to the likeness of his son Mm -hmm. so that he, Jesus, might be the first born among many brothers and sisters. So sanctification is something that is predestined. And so if you're a believer, you're being conformed to Jesus. And you say, I don't want to be conformed to Jesus. Well, you're not a believer. (laughs) It's just that simple. Yeah, and that's a hard pill for people to swallow. Yeah, And, and, and people who are fighting that conformity need to ask themselves, have I truly believed into Jesus Christ, have I truly made him Lord? Because faith in Christ is not just believing some data about him. It's trusting him, putting your whole trust and life in his hands, making him Lord of your life. Some people say, well, I've made him Savior, but he's not yet Lord. Well, there is no such thing as no lordship salvation because, in fact, when Paul in Romans 10 is talking about salvation, he says, how do you get saved? Well, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and then you shall be saved. So lordship is in the issue right up front. There's a reason why the word says that you must die to yourself. Yes. And not only that, but we're also told you can't serve two masters. Mm -hmm. So you can't be the Lord of your life and let God be the Lord of your life both. Right. It's just not possible because you're going to always try to cheat. Yeah. And I see this with people that claim to be believers all the time because they want to look for this little, well, can I still do this little thing? You know, (laughs) God's love. He's not going to judge me for this. Yeah. You don't understand. You don't get to make up the rules as you go. You know, James, uh, the, the half-brother of Christ, says something very uh, beautiful in, uh, in uh, his epistle. In chapter 4, uh, verse 8, he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, that's a beautiful, beautiful promise. <laughs> but it also, I, I preached a sermon many years ago, and I, I repeated it a couple times in different places, but it was called The True Christian Perspective. That is the true Christian perspective. What is the true Christian perspective? How close to God can I get? Right. Not how far away from God can I be and still have my life insurance? Yeah. You know, I want fire insurance, but I still want to have fun here. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And so if you have that perspective, you need to ask yourself, have I really trusted Christ? Do I have this perspective that he's what I want to, you know, in my life? He's the one I want to be like. And, And my perspective is I want to see how close to him I can get. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And then it tells us how to do that. James will talk about two important steps. If you're a sinner, he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Mm -hmm. Well, the the cleansing of the hand was symbolic of washing away your sins. You remember Pilate tried to wash away his sin after condemning Christ, knowing it was unjust. You can't blame me. Yeah, he said, he brought, give me some water. And he washed his hands, said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. Afraid that didn't quite take care of it. But the point (laughs) is, is that it was a symbol. And that's why he did that. Yeah, and so James says, wash your hands, you sinners. But then he says, and purify your heart, single-fy your heart. The word purity means single. Single-fy your heart, you double-minded. Notice he uses heart and mind there interchangeably mm-hmm. because the heart to the Hebrew had the will, the intellect, the uh, emotions, the desires, attitudes, motives, and imagination. And, the, and to the Greek, that was all there too. So they use it interchangeably. Mm-hmm. But he says, purify your heart, you double-minded. Christians can often be double-minded 
because they haven't allowed their hearts to be purified. That's why James seems to point to a fact that some Christians need to take a further step in appropriating what Christ has provided. This is not a second work of grace. It is one of the works of grace that has been provided for in the atonement. It was there all along, but you got to appropriate it by faith. And there were many works of grace in the atonement uh, that will continue all through your sanctification. Uh, some refer to it as a second work of grace. I don't have any problem with that because grace has many works it does for us, but it's all the same grace. And it all comes from the same source, what Christ provided at Calvary and what Christ provided by his resurrection to justify us from among the dead. And I talk to people all the time that argue that the Bible says, all I have to do is believe that Christ died for me. And that's the end of it. I can still live my life. And my argument is very simple. If you're truly saved then mm-hmm. your mind will change. And the things of this world will become less important to you, but the things of God will become more important to you. And you will mm-hmm. truly want to seek him more. Yeah. If you're not doing that part, you have to go back and look and see, what did you miss? Yeah. And you're, you're right on this, that when people say, well, all I have to do is believe, they're misunderstanding something very profoundly. Uh, the Greek word for believe, pistos, which is used in pistouo, Uh, means it's a strong word. It means to believe something so much that it controls your attitudes and actions. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if somebody came running into the studio here right now and started uh, shouting, fire, fire, the building's on fire. If we really believe them, we would go, oh, we got to do something. We'd stop recording right now. We'd try to get out of the building because we realize that's dangerous. But what if we sat here and said, oh, well, thank you for the information. We're a little busy right now. Uh, but, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see you later. And they go, don't you believe me? Well, oh yeah, we believe you, but, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of busy right now. And he's going to say, you don't believe part. me. You don't believe me. Why? Why is he saying that? Because there's no evidence coming from what should be, if we really believe there's fire in the building, there should be some actions being taking right. place that are going to be natural consequence. And when people say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I believe all the data. Yeah, but there's no evidence in their life. There's no fruit. The, the branch is not growing. It's not grafted in. Then you're going to have to ask, you know, that's why Paul said to the Corinthians, examine yourself to see if you're really in the faith because you can fail the test. Well, and I've actually had people make an argument, and, and I'm not sure it's a horrible argument. Yes, you can believe in Jesus Christ, but you didn't accept the gift of salvation. Well, a lot of people believe a lot of data about Jesus, and it's possible to believe that he's the Son of God. It's possible to believe that he rose from the dead. It's possible to believe that he provided for your salvation, and you can believe all of that and still say, but I'm not willing to surrender my life to him right now and let him be Lord of my life. And if you say no to him, no, I'm going to go. I've got things I want to do. I still want to control my life. You have just said no to your salvation because it doesn't matter that you believe all that data. The devils know all that, as James would have taught those who said they had faith. He says, oh, you believe there's one God? Well, you do really well. The demons believe that, and they shudder. doesn't save them. There's got to be some evidence coming out of what you believe. And so, you know, salvation is, in fact, that word pistos in the Greek is so strong, you can in certain contexts actually, without any violence to it at all, translate it to obey. So it literally means to believe so much that it causes you to obey the implications of what you believe. I think it's a great definition. Yes. And I think part of the problem that we see, in, especially in the, our Western culture here in America, is there are a lot of churches that 
every Sunday they do the sinner's prayer, and this is all you need to do to be saved. Mm-hmm. They sell it really hard. Yeah. And, but they stop so short of getting people to really understand that the process of salvation right. is much deeper than just saying a prayer. Yeah. And it's not, there's nothing wrong with doing that because people often need an opportunity in a worship service to confess and to pray uh, and to believe that their, you know, their sins are forgiven. But it needs to be always something that, you know, is taking seriously. This is not like, you know, you go into, you know, as one guy said, you know, he was a Catholic that said, I went into the confessional and confessed to the priest all my sins and also the ones I was planning on doing tomorrow, you know. <laughs> well, something's wrong with this confession because there's no repentance yeah, there's involved. No forward repentance, right? There's no repentance. And you can't confess ahead of time and get indulgences, you know, so you can go and sin. Because if you're planning on sinning, obviously your heart's in the wrong place. And I think that's the part that people miss the mark on quite a bit. If you've truly gone through this process of salvation, you no longer desire to go sin. Right. It's not that you're not going to sin. You don't desire to. Well, and this is the point is there. And remember last time we talked about Romans 7, there can Mm -hmm. be conflicting desires going on because there's a battle going on. Uh, The Bible recognizes the fact that sin can be attractive and that sin can even be pleasurable for the moment. You know, a person indulging in certain kinds of sin may say, oh, this is great. This is fun. This is pleasurable. This is awesome. But in the end, it bites like a serpent, Mm -hmm. you know. And so the end of the way of the transgressor is hard because it ends up in destruction. But it points to the fact that the Christian has a deeper desire, and that is they want to please Jesus Christ. It's not that they may not be tempted, that something may not for the moment have been pleasurable if they indulge in it, but they have a deeper desire which says, no, I want to please Jesus. I don't want anything in my life that grieves him. So I say no to that. And by the power of the Spirit, they can do that. They couldn't do that on their own without the power of the Spirit. But if you have the power of the Spirit in your life, you can do that. And when you do that, that's a confirmation, one of the confirmations of your salvation. You're not doing it by mere willpower. You're doing it by the Holy Spirit-empowered will, which is different. Right. And the other misconception that I hear quite often is that if you're saved, then you won't be tempted. And I'm like, no, that's absolutely wrong. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes the temptations will come to you even harder. Yeah. You know, and as we pointed out last time, temptation and sin are not the same thing. The line is at the point of the will. And even Jesus is tempted at all points like as we. So if somebody says you're not going to be tempted, they're claiming a higher state of perfection than Jesus had. And that's ridiculous. <laughs> right. So uh, that, that uh, that's absurd on its face. So. That brings us to another hotly debated and asked multiple times question, and that surrounds the security of the believer. Right. Can a believer lose their salvation? (laughs) That is literally probably 500 times I've seen that question in the last month. Yes, and it's an important one. Every true believer should uh, want to know the biblical answer to that question, and the point is, is that we know that the Bible promises there is security in Christ, and we don't have to live in insecurity. And so, uh, but the question is, is that really this boils down to what we would say in theology, is apostasy possible? And to apostatize means to turn back from the faith, to violate the faith, to go against what you formerly believe. And so this question is a very important question. And so the only thing we can do is go to Scripture. Mm-hmm. Because uh, 
the Bible makes it very, very clear. Jesus, for example, talks about the security of the believer in John chapter 10. He talks about, you know, the Father has given them to me. No one can snatch them out of my hand. They're secure. Right. You know, boy, that is an awesome, wonderful truth. And we are so glad the Lord gave us that because it is true. Nobody can snatch us out of his hands. So, uh, but he did not say that someone could not walk out of their own free will. So that becomes the question. Can someone who has truly become a believer and have they truly become a believer uh, choose to turn around and apostatize? And so what we need to do is probably examine instances of that in Scripture that seem to at least be examples of that. And, of course, we need to talk about some of the passages which always come up, some like out of Hebrews 6 and others, and and see if we can understand that properly. Uh, Ezekiel 18 is a very important passage on this, uh, on this it's out of the Old Testament, where God declares to Israel that if a, uh, a sinner repents, then he will live. But if a righteous man turns from his righteousness and sins, he will die for his sins. In other words, his former righteousness will do him no good. And this is out of Ezekiel chapter 18. And he goes through that several times. And he also points out that children don't die for their parents' sins, that each person will die for their own sins. Mm -hmm. Everybody's Mm -hmm. responsible to God for their own uh, uh, moral conduct. And so that passage is is a very profound passage in the Old Testament. And it gives us this sense of moral responsibility and also accountability to God. But I, but let's uh, let's start off by talking about some of the examples in Scripture that might look like the Scripture saying that apostasy is possible, at least. Okay. So if we can start there, and I think the the one that stands out the most in the New Testament, for example, would be Judas. Now, some would say that Jesus, right up front, says Judas was a devil, <laughs> and uh, and it is true that Jesus, on occasion, said, "Have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil." And so in that sense, he knew that Judas would be his betrayer. The Bible tells us he knew all along that Judas would be his betrayer. He knew who the betrayer was. He knew what ultimately would happen. That's the foreknowledge of God, and Christ was God, and he knew that. But at the same time, here, there's something very important for us to understand. Jesus, and, and if you, the more you study the Scriptures, the more you know this is true, Jesus never speaks inaccurately. He is always very precise in everything he says. And so he not only will not speak a lie, he will not speak something that is inaccurate. And he's too brilliant, obviously, (laughs) uh, to not be accurate. He knows all things. He's omniscient. Uh, And so even in his kenosis, where he limited himself, he still had access to all knowledge in the sense of he could never speak inaccurately. So you'll never hear something coming out of Jesus' mouth that's not accurate. In the Gospels, Jesus says to the twelve, with Judas present, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that all of your names are written in the book of life. Now, Judas is standing there when Jesus says this. Yes, and this is part of the argument that a lot of people are making. Yes, yeah. Now, the point is, is that on many occasions, Jesus will make the exception, you know, that you are all, for example, on in John 13, when he's, you know, talking to the disciples right before Jesus betrays him, he says, you are all clean because of the word I spoke of you, spoke to you, that is, but not all of you. In other words, there was one exception. Mm-hmm. So he's very careful to make sure that there, you know, he points out there's an exception. You're clean, but not all of you. 
Okay, there's one here that's not clean. Why? Because he's rejecting that word. He's, uh, he's redefining it according to his own either political ideals or whatever it is he's trying to force Jesus' hand to do. But the point is that he said with Judas present without any uh, parenthetical uh, denial, your names are written in the book of life. And so if Jesus said that, we have to take it on face value that he was saying to Judas, at this moment, your name is written in the book of life. So now comes the question, what happened? So is he still saved or is he the son of perdition as the Bible says he is? But that also indicates that Judas did accept salvation from Christ. Well, it seems to indicate that because Christ includes him among those whose names are written in the book of life. And So something and, changed. Yeah. Well, a cue to that comes in, in Revelation chapter 3 when you have the letters to the churches. In the letter to Sartus, you remember every church at the close of the letter, there is a reward promise for being an overcomer. If you overcome, then you're going to get this reward. Mm-hmm. One of the rewards, the one given, one of the rewards given to Sartus is this. I will never, if you are an overcomer, I will never erase your name from the book of life. Now, let's stop and think about that for a moment. First of all, he says you got to be an overcomer. So there's obviously something at stake here. Okay. Because right. if you're not an overcomer, you don't get the promise. Okay. If you are an overcomer, you do, because this is a antecedent consequence statement. Right. Okay. You got to fulfill the antecedent or you don't get the consequence. So he says, if you are an overcomer, then I will never erase your name from the book of life. Now, if indeed it would be impossible for a believer to have their name erased from the book of life, what would be the point of promising something that couldn't possibly happen anyway? It'd be like, duh, that doesn't mean anything to me. I can't have my name erased anyway. So he would have the Bible promising something that is a kind of fallacious promise, which has no meaning whatsoever. And yet Jesus is speaking as if it, this is a a very beautiful promise and a very beautiful reward for those who overcome. Don't have to worry about their name ever being erased from the book of life. Is it possible to have your name erased from the book of life? Well, that takes us back to Judas. Yeah, and I think that the accuracy with which God speaks and yeah. that he never has double speak. No. And no. for that to be written in Revelation tells us that, yes, you can. And that is Jesus speaking in Revelation. John is quoting right. Christ. At so, that so absolutely. I mean, th- there's the answer right there. Well, if we let the Bible speak for itself, it seems to assume that apostasy is possible. Now, let me be quick to say this. I do not believe that true believers commonly apostatize. I just don't believe that's normal. Uh, I think people who truly are born again come to a kind of spiritual sanity, and that as a result of that sanity, that they don't apostatize. But do I have to allow that apostasy is possible? Well, Judas would be the first example that, yeah, apostasy is possible. The Bible gives us several other examples, Uh, and in some cases, you could say that the apostate is being labeled that way because they thought they never were true believers. They were phony from the beginning. And yes, that that would also be an apostate in a sense. But on the other hand, it talks about those who were, and they talk about it in terms of being true believers. And of course, the one passage that we should probably spend some time with would be Hebrews chapter 6, because everybody raises that, that, that passage, and we've got to treat it with honesty, and it comes right in here. And mm-hmm. so, um, in fact, I, I've got it right here, so if I'll just read it for sure. us, and then we'll discuss it. 
In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, uh, I have had this read to me so many times with the question that we're talking about. And it says this, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance, to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subject Him to public disgrace. Now, let's notice a couple of things, because there's five things here listed about this person. And then we'll talk about the impossibility in just a moment and how we uh, let the Bible interpret that. Mm-hmm. It says that the, it, this is referring to people who first have once been enlightened. So in other words, they've certainly heard the gospel. They've heard the truth. Okay. Secondly, it goes further. They have actually tasted the heavenly gift. What's that? That's the gift of salvation. Uh, in other words, they've partaken of that. Uh, so they are partakers of the heavenly gift is another way to translate that. And then it says, who have shared in the Holy Spirit. Nobody shares in the Holy Spirit but a born-again believer. Sinners do not have the Spirit. Jesus made that clear in his paraclete teachings in John chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. He says the world will not receive him. They will not get the Holy Spirit. They don't know about him. They don't discern him at all. And that, you know, my father and I will not cut with our spirit and make our home with them. <coughs> Excuse me. So he, he basically drives home the point that non-believers do not share in the Holy Spirit. Only believers do. Mm-hmm. And so, but here we have someone who is sharing in the Holy Spirit. And I've heard some say, well, this is somebody that appears to be sharing, but that's not what it says. <laughs> it says they shared in the Holy Spirit. And then it says they have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. Wow. This is about the coming age of the divine kingdom. And so, again, this is speaking very powerfully. And so it says, and then it says, who have fallen away. And um, this term to, to fall away, and you can translate that if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Now, we'll talk about that in a moment, but, but then he, here's the reason he gives. To their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subject, subjecting him to public disgrace. Now, in the Greek, even though in the translation I'm reading here, which is uh, basically the NIV uh, anglicized the United, for the United Kingdom. Right. I, I like the anglicized version. But, but they divide this into uh, a couple of sentences here. It's only one sentence in the Greek. And basically it's important to understand that when it says it's impossible to renew them, to bring them back to repentance— and then we have in it, the sentence goes on, and, it, and there's a word here that is sometimes translated because, or it is sometimes translated while, W-H-I-L-E, while. Hmm. So depending on how you translate that, and you'll often see that in some of your Bibles, there'll be a little asterisk now at the bottom of the page or in the center of the page, it'll say the alternate translation could be while. And that's the one that makes sense within the context of Scripture. For what he's saying is they cannot be renewed to repentance while they continue to crucify the Son of God all over again and subject him to public disgrace. In other words, they got to quit doing that. And the Bible makes it clear that the backslider can return to God. 
In fact, in one place he goes so far as God says, I'm married to the backslider. I, I am, you know, I'm like a, a grieved husband, but I'm married to them, and I'm willing to restore them if they will come home. And so we see here that the, that the translation should not be because, but, but while, while they continue to do this, they can't be brought back to repentance. Repentance means you got to stop that, turn around, change your direction, change your mind, and go the other way. And so we have seen apostates come back home. And, uh, and, and, of course, there are some who say, no, they don't believe apostasy is even possible. Uh, <clears throat> and I really think that we should probably, J.D., look at the practical side of this. We're often trying to answer questions that only God can answer. Yeah, and I think some of the people, and I've had people give me some examples, that, and I don't think it's true apostasy what they're giving examples of even. You have somebody that was, has been a believer for a long time, truly been a believer, lots of fruit, you know, served their community and their church, you know, very, very passionately in love with God. A tragedy occurs in their life. Their mm-hmm. spouse is suddenly taken by a DUI driver or something, and they fall down. Next thing you know, they're into alcohol and mm-hmm. they completely have walked away from their faith. They're not talking to God, not praying. They're a wreck. Right. And people go, well, is that person now written out of the book of life? I mean, I think, like I said, we're often trying to answer questions that only God can answer. Yeah. And the point is God, God helps us in our weaknesses. And some Christians in moments of weakness may lapse into former sins and into weaknesses to certain ways of coping that they should not. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, they're going to have to come back to repentance in regard to those things. But it's not up to us to say whether or not they've been written out of the book right. or why. You know, I've often used this example, for example, I'm a great, you know, I, there are many people that are not necessarily in my theological camp officially, so to speak, that I have great admiration for because they're great Christians and great theologians and so on. So, for example, uh, I think Dr. John MacArthur is a great Bible teacher. And I've heard him teach on this subject, and John doesn't believe that a Christian can lose her salvation, obviously, because he comes from a very much more staunchly Calvinistic perspective. And so, for example, he might say if someone that had been in the church that seemed to be this incredible Christian that would kind of fall into the category of this person in Hebrews 6, mm-hmm. and then they fall away, and they're obviously living a totally unchristlike life, they're, they're, they're living like the devil, and, you know, they're just blaspheming and everything else. John would say, well, obviously they never were a Christian. And he may be dead right, because that that is certainly probably the first possibility and the more likely possibility in some ways. Because it is possible to be converted emotionally. Mm-hmm. It's possible to be converted intellectually, but never have truly surrendered your will. And you're not really born again until you surrender your will to God. A lot of people have an emotional experience. A lot of people have an intellectual assent. But until they actually say, yes, you're in charge, God, they have not received the gift of salvation because it is with, you know, we confess it with our mouth because our will is involved and we have to believe in our heart, which is an act of our will. And that that, that, uh, believing is an act of the will. It's not an emotional thing. So John might say they never were a Christian. Now, someone who believes in apostasy may look at that same person and say, no, I believe they were a believer, but I believe they've apostatized and and lost their salvation. Uh, My answer to them is this. Both of you really come out in the same conclusion. One, John says they never were Christians, so what should we do? Well, we should pray for them. They really come to know Jesus. And the other person says, well, I think they were, but they are not obviously not a believer now. Well, you should pray for them so they come to Same know Jesus. In other words, 
the practical thing is that we can agree this person is not a believer now. In other words, we're not antinomians. And the word antinomian is, of course, that has to do with the doctrine that we can be saved in our spirit, but our body can go on sinning. Right. And the antinomians were considered heretics, and they were kicked out of the church in the early centuries because it came out of Gnosticism, the idea that the, the body is totally sinful and therefore cannot be part of redemption, so only your spirit is saved. So if my body goes on sinning, don't worry about it. Let, let your body do what it wants to, but you're saved. Well, that's a total heresy because corpses don't sin. And so if your body's sinning, it's because your spirit's involved. Right. And the church made that very clear. But the point is, is that we're not antinomians. We don't believe that we have permission to just sin away. And uh, and so what John is saying is true. This person may never have been a believer uh, in the first place. They may look like it. In fact, Jesus told a parable to this very uh, point. And I think when John was teaching on this, it's been many years since I heard him teach on it. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that he used this parable and, and dissected it to this point, and that's the one of the parable of the soils. We usually often call it the parable of the sower, but it's actually about the soils, mm -hmm. the condition of the human heart represented by different kinds of soils. And he pointed out that, you know, there's the seed that falls on the hardened ground. It doesn't penetrate at all. Right. It's obvious there's no salvation here. The, he says that the birds that symbolize Satan and his demons, they come and take it all away. Mm -hmm. uh, then there is the shallow soil, which is like very fertile soil, but over a very hard rock surface, and there's no depth. And it says they spring up quickly. They look like the best plants in the garden. Why? They're putting no energy in putting down roots because they're just spreading out horizontal. But then Jesus says, but when the sun comes out and they're scorched, they wither and die. Why? Because they have no root, because they can't get down to where there's moisture, mm -hmm. and they don't have any depth. Okay? So, and the point here is that they never bear fruit. The symbol in the parable of eternal life is fruit. The only thing that keeps the cycle going is if the plant bears fruit, the seed falls and grows another plant, which bears fruit, the seed falls, and so on. And that, that's the symbol of unending life. And so, but he says they don't, they don't bear any fruit. Then there's the seed that falls in good soil, but it's full of thorns and thistles would represent the cares and the deceptiveness of wealth and all these things Jesus says it represents. And he says it chokes it out so that it is unfruitful. It bears no fruit. Mm -hmm. And so, once again, there's no symbol of eternal life here. But then he says there is that which falls on good soil, and it comes up and it bears fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. And that's the symbol of the true believer. And that they actually bear fruit. And so, we could say, yeah, many look like you know, the, the shallow soil. They, I mean, they look like the best plants in the garden. Then you turn around one day and go, where'd they go? Where'd they go? Well, they fell away because they had no root. And Jesus says they really never had, they were never saved at the depth of their of their will. They were never surrendered their will to God. It didn't have any depth. It was shallow. It could be emotional, intellectual. It could be whatever, but it, it wasn't true conversion. Yeah, so I think that the simple answer for people in this is the prescription for those that may have their name blotted out of the book of life or have fallen away is the same for a new believer. Mm -hmm. You turn away from your sin, That's you right. confess it, you repent of it, you ask Christ to forgive you, and then you change your life and you submit to him. If you can do all those things, you're back in the family. You're, yeah. you're grafted back in. And and the, and this the question you know Paul uh, <clears throat> remember in First Corinthians had a man basically excommunicated out of the church because of a 
very unusual sin where he had actually taken uh, his father's former wife, uh, which was a mother-in-law to him, and now was cohabiting with her. And Paul was just said, you know, even the pagans would condemn that, you know. And so he said, you know, you're to deal with him. You are to deliver him over to Satan. And, and the Corinthians obviously did that. And then in the second letter, though, Paul says that now that he's repented, you should renew your love for him. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that when we tend to go easy on sin, we're in one ditch. And then when we come out of it, we tend to go in the other ditch. And now we're too hard. So Paul's now having to tell him, no, 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 no. When they repent, you renew your love for him and you bring him back in and you confirm that he's still part of the body of Christ, you know, because we did this to save his soul. We wanted him to wake up. Well, we've talked about the process of salvation. We talked about the gift and how it comes about. We talked about how and why it was provided. We've talked about whether or not you can lose it and how you regain it if you fall away and you do things that that are against God's nature. So we've covered pretty much the full gambit, I think, of salvation and and what it means in people's life, what it looks like, the fruit, how you can recognize it in somebody's life. The one burning question that I've had dozens of questions on that I think we better touch on before we close this out is, what about the children that have never, you know, that don't grow up old enough to hear the gospel, understand it, babies, uh, you know, children aborted in the womb? There's a lot of concern. Um, One lady in particular emailed me, and she had three grandchildren that were like two, four, and five and they were killed in a car wreck, and mm-hmm. she just can't bear to think that they didn't go to heaven. Right. So does God provide a way mm-hmm. for these people to go to heaven? Yes, and uh, Christendom from the earliest days have understood infants and children to be redeemed. And so, But, the, but then that raises some very important questions. Mm-hmm. How does that apply, and how does that work within the provisions of the atonement? So, uh, because they certainly don't grow up uh, and they're not capable to believe and to have, you know, a conscious faith and repentance toward God. So the question is, is uh, how are the infants saved? Uh, there, are, It is interesting that if you are a very, you know, as we were talking about, uh, you know, hyper-Calvinism last week, if you're a very staunch hyper-Calvinist, you would basically have to believe that only the elect children are saved. And there's actually many Calvinists down through the centuries who said only the elect children are saved and only God knows who the elect ones are. Well, what about the others? Well, they're damned, you know, because that's, they, they come, they're not elect. And, uh, and so that, that becomes no different than regard to the others that God has elected to damnation. But uh, it, we find it a little more, at least maybe a Maybe there's no difference intellectually, but we find it a little emotionally disturbing that God would take an what we say innocent child mm-hmm. in the sense at least they've never been capable of conscious sin uh, and and then torment it forever and ever uh, because it simply is of the of the seat of Adam. Um, we don't believe in a God that is that kind of monstrous being, and we and the question is, does the atonement of Christ reach to the children? And Jesus seemed to indicate that it did. He said they that these children were what the kingdom of God was all about. He used them as symbols of what you have to become like to become mm-hmm. uh, part of the kingdom. 
But it's interesting. There's been many, many solutions to this. You know, uh, even Augustine at one point said that unbaptized infants were uh, were doomed. You know, they 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 were damned. Uh, in Catholicism, there has been some who've come up with the idea of limbo that they can't be saved, but then they're not really tormented. They just kind of go into a, an unconscious vegetative state forever and ever. Uh, the problem with that, you can't find that in Scripture anywhere. That's just somebody's uh, conjecture. <clears throat> so. What can we find scripturally? Well, let me start by talking about something that Wesley. Wesley himself dealt with this. Now, it's interesting that the church and us evangelicals, we struggle with this today because we believe in what we call believer's baptism, and we, and we practice that. We believe that when a person makes a profession of faith in Christ, they should publicly demonstrate that by submitting to baptism, just as Jesus did, setting the example for us, and that baptism is a public declaration of the faith that I have placed in Christ, and therefore is an outward sacrament and symbol of the grace that I have received by believing in Jesus Christ. Now, the thief on the cross never got to be baptized, but he, he made it to paradise. Jesus said so. So baptism is not what saves you, but it is, of course, a sacrament, and it is one that Christ instituted it is one which he confirmed, and it's one that every believer should be obedient to. And we believe that we, we call this believer's baptism because the person has put their faith in Christ and they declare it by their baptism. That raises the question of infant baptism. A child cannot put their faith in Christ, you know, when they're six months old and they're being christened or baptized. And so is there any value to infant baptism? Well, interestingly enough, us evangelicals have usually said no to a large degree uh, because we only see believer's baptism as valid. However, if you go back to Wesley, Luther, Calvin, uh, you go all the way back to Augustine, uh, no matter how far you go back, you go back to the Didache. The Didache is the earliest Christian writing we have outside the New Testament. It goes back to the first century. It was a document written for the education and, and training of uh, those who were being prepared for baptism so they could take their first communion as believers. And so the church created a little discipleship program called the Didache. It means the teaching. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, in the Didache, infant baptism is confirmed as valid. So... Uh, there's a long history of thousands of years of, of that most of the church down through history has validated. Now, the analogy that is often made by the early fathers to this is that a child of Israel, for example, was circumcised on the eighth day. Right. Okay, what was that circumcision? It was a sign of their inclusion as a son of the law. Of course, it was circumcision was only for the male, but it was a sign of their inclusion in the covenant. So they became a son of the covenant, a son of the law, and they were—they they had no choice in the matter. It was done to them. It was decided for them by their parents, uh, much as infant baptism would be decided for. But that child was considered, although the in the time of Jesus, the bar mishma was not something that was in practice. That came later. But the bar mishma, uh, there was something similar to it, that a child, when he came to the age of adulthood— uh, which was for the Jew he, when he entered his 13th year, uh, which is what we would say he was 12, he'd had his 12th birthday. But he's not, but the Jews predate, we post-date. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they would say he's now 13 because he's in his 13th year. So when he entered that year, 
he was he had to confirm his circumcision by declaring himself a son of the law that he had intentions of walking according to the law of Moses therefore you might uh and that could be analogous to some churches use confirmation so a child at the age of 12 or 13 or 14 or somewhere there right. would go through a class in you know, Christian doctrine and the things you're supposed to believe as a believer. You were baptized, I say, as an infant. Now you need to confirm your faith. And I've actually seen this done well in some churches where this was, you know, that the child is not only given the doctrines and, and taken to a ritual. I was attended one where each child was brought up. They were knelt at an altar. They were asked the questions will do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that he rose from the dead? Have you made him Lord of your life? And in other words, they were very specific, and the child had to answer specifically on his knees before God. And then they and then uh, in this case, there was a bishop present, and he said, on the basis of your confession of faith in Jesus Christ, I therefore declare your salvation valid. and he 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 confirmed them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to me, that was a, a very good use of the concept of confirmation because they were confirming, and he was saying that by this, your your baptism has become valid because you validated it. Right. Okay. So, uh, and and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, some of us may feel there's a better way to do this, but the point is, is that most of the church down through history has done it that way. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> Wesley, this was his solution to it. You've got to come, and, and so we'll use him as an example. Calvin and some of the others had similar ideas, but, but you know, Luther, Calvin, all of them believed that infants were saved, but they had to come up with a different little system because it didn't fit the Calvinistic system if they weren't the elect. Uh, but they, they, they struggled with the idea that God would damn infants, uh, the, the so-called innocent. Uh, but the interesting thing here is that Wesley had an interesting take on this. And so we have to look at it because it goes back to our idea, is apostasy possible? Mm-hmm. And here's where the two tied together. Wesley said that when Jesus died on the cross, that what he provided for mankind, according to Paul in Romans chapter 5, that as in Adam all died, so in Christ all are made alive. Uh, and that, you know, as in Adam all became sinners, in Christ all become righteous. Now. Obviously, Paul's not teaching universalism there because he points out later that if you don't receive it, you, you know, you're going to be doomed. You're going to lose your soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's not teaching universalism, but he is teaching that the provision covers the whole human race and that everyone is covered by the blood of Christ. Wesley interpreted this, interestingly enough, that, this, that every person comes into the world saved by the blood of Christ because of the atonement. And that the atonement reaches not only forward from the cross, it reaches back from the cross because God, Paul even argues this, that God in the cross was validating all of his former actions of not dealing with people's sins because he had a plan to deal with it and that that would validate their faith, for example, when they offered a sacrifice, believing that God would provide the real sacrifice. Therefore, now that faith has been validated because the real sacrifice has been offered. So, in other words, the cross is God's eternal fact. It reaches all the way back to Adam and all the way forward to the end of time. And so Wesley said, everyone comes into the world saved provisionally in Christ. And as long as you are innocent, uh, you're covered by the blood of Christ. Uh, He then said, but because we have a sin nature, 
we all ultimately, when we come to the age of accountability, we we sin away our our state of grace. Now, obviously, Wesley believed in apostasy was possible, just like James Arminius, who was a Calvinist theologian, believed that apostasy was possible. Mm-hmm. And he says, Wesley says that in the sense of every person, it's quite common because we all apostatize in a sense. And he doesn't use that exact terminology, but that's his meaning. Because we all, when we come to the age of accountability, we validate our sinfulness by our own sinful choices. Therefore, in a sense, we turn our back on the salvation that's been provided to us. So when we hear the gospel, we're actually being called to come home, to come home to what Jesus provided for us, which we forfeited and turned our back on by unbelief and disobedience. Now, you may or may not like that uh, and you know, or want to embrace that thinking. But Wesley said, therefore, we know if that's the only way he could figure that the, uh, the atonement would cover an infant. It has to be provided by Christ. No one can be saved except through Christ. So what other system are you going to come up with other than that the blood of Christ covers every human being until at some point, uh, and, and unless you become, a, and then you have to say, if you allow that, unless you're going to become a universalist that everybody's now saved, uh, which the Bible does not teach and, and, and actually contradicts strongly, then you have to admit that there is some kind of apostasy by the child at some point, uh, and, uh, and therefore they need to be saved from their sins and born again and brought to new life because when they came to the age of accountability, they, in a sense, really validate that their sinfulness and therefore die and sin creates a barrier between them and God. Yeah, I think that's a good answer, and and I think that it, for me, it, it easily fits into what we have been discussing about the nature of God. If if you have listened to the podcast and you've heard the show on the nature of God, uh-huh. and that being love, there's no way that a, a God of love would just throw innocent children, babies into the lake of fire. I mean, yeah. I just, I, I don't see how that makes any rational sense. Yeah, and, and emotionally, we can all see that argument very well. But what we don't understand, the same argument holds for the rest of the human race in this sense, that if God has the power to save all, and he just says to some, I'm sorry, I've chosen to damn you. <laughs> right. It, there is no difference. Right. You know, and, and we should feel exactly the same about that. Right. That we would about taking a young baby and just, damning it and torturing it forever. That is not the God, way God presents himself in Scripture. And he doesn't create anything just so he can torture it forever. And if people are incapable of repenting because they haven't been elected, therefore they have no ability to repent, and they are hopeless slaves to sin and can do nothing else, then there is no way that God could hold them responsible. He can't say, well, you could have repented. No, he can't say that if they if they are doomed not to repent, if they've been predestined to be damned, they're, you know, so you, you can't have it both ways. It's one way or the other. Either God is some kind of monster. And this is why Wesley said he couldn't be a Calvinist, because he said it slanders God. It slanders his goodness. It slanders his love. It slanders what we see on the cross of Calvary. That is not the Christ of Calvary. Uh, he is not, he is seeking to do whatever except force He's willing to do anything but force and pay any price to save everyone because it's God's will that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. Yeah, and, and I can imagine a God that provided a way for 
sinners to receive salvation, to receive forgiveness, wouldn't provide a way for children. That It couldn't be communicated. There's just no way. That's like a work half done. Yeah. And and Jesus' attitude toward children just speaks loudly oh, yeah. for itself. I yeah, mean, so. he blessed them. He said they are the... They're the very epitome of what the kingdom of heaven is about. And he couldn't have done that if indeed these were damned children. No. So it it makes no sense. It makes no sense. And I think that for us, in the God that we believe in and the God that we follow and serve, I feel very confident that we can rest assured that God has provided for those children. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and again, so there's a kind of a tying together of this idea of infant salvation and the fact that even though they are covered by the blood of Christ in their, what we would will use parenthetically are, in quotations, their innocence, because mm-hmm. they are innocent in one sense, and uh, but that they, in a sense, sent away that salvation by their willfulness as an individual, because they have moral freedom to say no to God, and that we all do end up saying no to God at some level. Uh, if you're raised in a very wonderful Christian home, I've actually known... Uh, one or two people that told me they were raised in such a wonderful Christian environment that at the very young age, they were led to put their faith in Christ very quickly. So they felt like they kind of moved almost from that innocence into a choice of salvation and never knew separation from God. And I believe that's very possible that they're early. And of course, that faith had to grow and mature as time went on and, and had to encompass more and more of their life as they became more and more responsible for more moral issues as an adult. But the point is that they they were able to, in that godly environment of that home, to live that life and uh, to never, as one lady said to me, I've never known anything but a relationship with God. Because from my earliest times, when I became conscious, my parents quickly led me into faith and into repentance and into belief in God. And my, for my little sins, as we would say, of a child, you know, of lying and not quite mm-hmm. doing the right thing. But but the point is that those are just as serious. And and so they were, she said, I was led to repent of those and to trust God for my salvation. And I grew to love him and I've never known anything else. And of course, that's what we would ideally desire for every person, if only it, it could happen. Some of us, he has to go into these really dark places to pull us out. <laughs> yeah. And you, some people have been raised in wonderful families like that and totally rebelled and uh, and thankfully, we've got wonderful stories of them coming home. So, Well, this has been a precious time talking with you about salvation. Is there anything that you feel like we didn't cover that we ought to probably put out there? Well, th- th- there's just so much more. I mean, like I said, we're like I said last time, we're doing this 35,000 foot yeah. view over this flyover. And, and you know, and the, I, I think the Bible makes it very clear that, you know, when, and I, I'm going to say if somebody says, well, they don't think a believer can lose their salvation, I would say... I don't have a problem with that as long as you understand that that doesn't, you can't, what you can't do is go and say, well, they can be living like the devil and and they're obviously still a Christian. In fact, I actually heard an old theologian back in the 50s. I, I was very young, but I heard my father address this as a theologian. And, and this guy coming out of hyper-Calvinism made the statement that some people, once they're saved, they can't lose their salvation, but they become they backslide and become so bad that God has to kill them because they would be, create such a disgrace on this planet. So he takes them to heaven. And, uh, and I remember uh, my father quoting, I think it was uh, W.T. Perkiser saying, that's not grace, that's disgrace. <laughs> that, that somebody would be so bad they're not fit for earth, but they're fit for heaven. Uh, that's not the way it works. We're not antinomians. We don't, and so... 
uh, if you, you know, I would follow even John MacArthur. If you are a true believer, you will be seeking to live the Christ life. You know, you will have evidence. There will be fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. You will be growing. You may not be growing as fast as someone else, but you will be growing. You know, some of the wheat bore 30 times, some 60, some 100. Mm-hmm. But the point is, and and even in the parables of the talent, according to their gifting, they were, one was given five, one was given two, one was given one. The, the whole point of it is that, uh, you know, we don't all have to perform the same, but we do have to be moving in the right direction. And that that's that's the, so crucial. So if you say, well, I don't believe uh, a person can lose their salvation, well, at least don't try to justify the wicked, because we believe in the eternal security of believers, not of rebellious sinners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they don't have any security. They're, they're, they're told to repent or perish, as Jesus would say. And, and Jesus himself warned of this many times, uh, that unless you, you turn and do the things, you know, and, and Peter talks about, you know, making your calling and election sure. What would be the point of making such an admonishment if there was nothing you could do to make your calling? And why does it need to be made sure if it's all by divine decree? You have nothing to do with it, you know. And if uh, you can't, don't have any choice but to prefer, persevere to the end to be saved— why are all the admonishments to persevere and hold on to your faith? Paul talks to the Colossians about, you know, you Stand have this it. salvation if you hold on to your faith and do not mm-hmm. be moved from the hope of the gospel. Why say that if indeed they couldn't be removed from the hope of the gospel if they were the elect right. and by divine decree? So there's some things we need to think through very, very carefully. So we want no one to have false security thinking that they can sin away and that, you know, I I shook the preacher's hand, I'm okay. And we don't want anybody, you know, uh, having a uh, false insecurity either, because Christians should not be living in fear. We should be living in delight in our Lord and knowing that we are safe in his hands and no one can take us out of his hands. And the key is we have even the grace to keep making the decision to stay there ourselves because we have the sanity of the Holy Spirit within us. And I think you said something very important earlier, too. We have to remember there's a difference between saying, I believe, because even the devil believes that yeah. Jesus Christ is Lord. Yeah. But then the difference between I believe and salvation I is, trust. I trust. Yeah. I submit. Yes. And my life is now different. Yes. That's that's the big, that's the bridge that and, we have And to I think Dallas Willard said it well when he said almost every place in the English translation today where we have the word faith, with just a few exceptions, uh, we should rather translate that to trust mm-hmm. because that's really, we've come to make the word faith almost just to believe data or data points and stuff. Right. But the word trust means to put your weight on, to really hang everything there, to, to risk everything on this person and their fidelity and their ability to do what they promised to do. And that's how you come to God and say, I want you Lord of my life, and I'm going to submit to you, and, and I'm going to put all my eggs in one basket. Jesus is Lord, and I don't need anything else. Well, I want to thank you for coming in and talking to us for the last five weeks. We've covered a lot of information. Yeah. We've taught a lot of lessons here, and we've put a lot of really good information out there about sin and, and salvation. And I think that people can get a lot of great hope out of what we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they can become educated and maybe learn some things they hadn't learned before or maybe correct some things that they had been taught that might have been an error. 
So I, I really, I really want to thank you for sticking with us for so long and just bringing us your good word and, and your knowledge. We just thank you so much. Well, it's a privilege, J.D., and, and of course, my prayer for all those who are listening to the podcast is that they come to a real assurance of faith. The Bible promises that, that those who walk with Christ come to a deep assurance of faith. Those who, you know, who, who walk with him uh, are not going to come to insecurity. They're going to come to security, and they're going to be firm. And uh, I've been teaching in our church a series called Staunch, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we've just kind of finished that series. But but the importance at the end time of remaining staunch, and I believe that true believers can be staunch. We can be unmovable in our faith, and even in the face of uh, great persecution, maybe even to the point of giving our lives, which many believers have had to do down through history, uh, we can be staunch. We can say, no, my, my hope is in Christ. And I, I, I pray that for every one of our listeners, that they will be staunch in their faith and be secure in the love of God. Amen. Well, this has been a Veritas Resurgence broadcast. And today on A Voice Calling in the Wilderness, we've been talking about this very important topic of salvation. Please take a moment and subscribe to our podcast, and don't forget to visit our website at vrbroadcast.org, where you can find more teaching and ask questions of the show and our guests. Also, find us on Facebook at A Voice Calling in the Wilderness. And if you want to hear more messages from Pastor Gary Durham, you can find him at pcnh.church. Do us a favor, recommend the podcast to your friends and family. And again, thank you for listening, and have a blessed day. Mm-hmm.